Hello, you're listening to the Inclusive Innovators podcast, a brand new series recorded entirely in lockdown. This series is part of the East London Inclusive Enterprise Zone, aka Elise, powered by UCL. Elise is an accessible, specially designed community for entrepreneurs who are disabled or whose work focuses on accessibility. This series is packed full of change makers, innovators, and partners all of them connected to Elise. Built on the Paralympic legacy, we're working with several partners, including Disability Rights UK, Plexor, and the Global Disability Innovation Hub to pioneer the development of products and services in and around the Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park. Each episode, you'll hear from our host, Matt Pieri. Matt founded Sociability, an app which helps disabled people find accessible spaces such as cafes and bars. This app is now available to download. Hi everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Inclusive Innovators podcast. This week, we're chatting with Andrew Rowan, head of Plexel and one of the key driving forces behind setting up the Here East campus where the East London Inclusive Enterprise Zone is now housed. This week we chat about some of the structural forces at play and how Andrew and his team worked hard to set up a home and a real base for inclusive innovation in East London. Hope you enjoy and see you next week. It's a real pleasure to talk to you today, particularly in your capacity um, as head of Plexel and the great work that's happening out there. So if I could just ask you to kick things off by just introducing yourself and a little bit about your current role, that'd be fantastic. Sure, thanks Matt. So I'm Andrew Rowan, I'm Managing Director of Plexel. Uh, Plexel is an innovation centre based on the Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park at Here East. Um, Here East itself was a campus born out of the Olympic Games where uh, a colleague of mine and I uh, wrote a vision paper to build a technology cluster out of what was the press and broadcast centres built for the Olympics. And our goal was to bring together academia, enterprise and innovators and put them all in one place and add some collaboration platforms on top. And Plexel is the best articulation of that, that innovation and collaboration that we intended. Awesome. That's super helpful. Um, and could you just talk a little bit about Plexel's mission and what it's doing here is in conjunction with the East London Inclusive Enterprise Zone and how those two work together? Yeah, sure. So Plexel's mission is to foster a new kind of collaboration. And it's, I think it's really important to look at Plexel in the sum of not only its parts, but also the sum of the campus parts that Here East represents. So both Here East and Plexel have a common investor. And that's a really important point because it allows, also Plexel has been a, a consequence of the wider investment in the campus and the goal to regenerate the local area, um, which was all part of the government's Olympic legacy plan. And that re- regeneration comes on, on many uh, planes. So social regeneration, of course. So the reason East London was picked as a location for the Olympic investments uh, was such that the social prosperity need was high. Um, so that social regeneration is obviously very far and wide, but it's also very specific to aim at, at particular user groups and particular uh, parts of the, of the demographic in order to make sure that the, the investment causes the impact that was intended. There's also an economic component to that regeneration, of course, and that's not only the prosperity of, of individuals, it's also the prosperity of the innovation ecosystem that, that allows for new companies to be born and allows for those companies to grow and scale. And, and hopefully, as, as we go through the years, we'll be seeing uh, quite a large number of companies uh, born in Plexel that, that we enable the scaling off onto a, onto a global, uh, global platform. 
So in, t- in terms of what Plexel's here for, so in the cold um, investment appraisal of why Plexel is here, Plexel is here to increase the real estate value of East London. So to create a commercial district that wasn't here before, and that commercial district will drive a number of outcomes, particularly social regeneration and economic growth. At the kind of micro level of, of why, why Plexel's here, so Plexel's here to grow a burgeoning community of innovators, to enable that community of innovators to access new marketplaces, to access large enterprise, and to leverage academia. Um, and we do that in conjunction not only with the collaborators that, that exist within Plexel, but we're really importantly an open collaboration platform. So we welcome anyone. You don't have to be a member of Plexel in order to come and participate. And then the East London Inclusive Enterprise Zone is sort of the um, the broader body or the kind of broader collaboration that includes a bunch of those organisations, academia and Plexel that sit within here East. Is that right? Exactly. So probably about two years ago now, we um, we had started an innovation platform and it was generic to the, the genre of innovation that we were trying to address. What we find, found that by becoming more specific, we actually had much more of an impact to our target user group and we became much more relevant to that group and therefore attractive to engage with us more readily. And um, so we highlighted three particular areas we, we wanted to be famous for. Um, and famous for the innovation within. So the first one is cybersecurity, the second one, mobility, and then the third one, social inclusion. So our role in the East London Inclusive Enterprise Zone uh, was all about that third strand. So what we meant by social inclusion was a number of things, but but specifically to look at, look at driving underrepresented groups in society and supporting them through collaboration, supporting them through services and giving um, a home in an ecosystem to those groups. Now, so when we were approached by UCL in what I think was around about January 2019, uh, UCL asked us to collaborate with them amongst a series of other brands in order to, to drive forward what would become now the Inclusive Enterprise Zone. And we were delighted to be not only the host of the vast majority of what will come out of that Enterprise Zone, uh, but also starting to be able to layer on innovation services on top of that for our chosen groups. Now, it's very particular to the Heres campus around our, our role in disability-led innovation. So we're fortunate probably to be the leading campus in the world for um, um, disability-led innovation. So we're neighbours of the likes of Scope, uh, the, the large disability charity in the UK, uh, Disability Rights UK, the largest lobbying group for disabled rights in the UK, and also the Global Disability Innovation Hub within UCL. Uh, which is, is DFID funded, but looking at taking um, innovation models and innovation concepts in order to drive the proliferation of, of disability-led innovation around the world. And it's with those neighbours that it really starts to underpin what an ecosystem play might look like in, in, this, in this activity. And what we hope is that we're going to create the, the baseline for what it means to, you know, to create that inclusive innovation uh, centre uh, specifically for disability-led innovation. I think that's super interesting, um, you know, conceptually, and it's nice to see a space with such prominence being devoted to this issue. Um, but what are some of the innovation services and some of the programs that, you know, have either started in this space, particularly focused on breeding, like you said, more um, entrepreneurs, particularly around disability-led um, innovation and inclusion 
you know, outcomes. Um, what are some of the you know, innovation support services that you mentioned and some of the programs that have either started or are planned in the near future? So we are well used to running programs of activity and there's, there's formal and informal um, activity that goes on. If I start with formal. Uh, so Matt, yourself, you were part of a, a program we ran late last year called Open Door. And Open Door was our inaugural program related to social inclusion. And what we was looking at was, was looking at a number of underrepresented founders or tools that could address, technology tools that could address challenges within underrepresented groups. Um, we took on board a cohort of nine companies, I think it was in the end, um, to seek to help them predominantly on a product development journey and to look at a series of things. So relevance of product fit to market, uh, to look at sources of investment, either current or future, and look at the, the funding journey that that, that organisation was on, um, access to customers, so start to both socialise the product through marketing, but also driving forward one-to-one uh, -one pitch practice in order to, to engage with, with clients and, and the relevant material that would be required for that. And a series of professional services activities, so whether that be marketing support, uh, recruitment support, um, where new hires were required, um, brand engagement, where potentially a pivot was required of the brand, and company structuring, so looking at what the best type of structure would look like in order to, to drive forward the, the goal and mission of the organisation in question. Um, and then notoriety within not only the, the segment the product was aimed at, but also the adjacent segments as well to start to, to gain some sort of knowledge and, and uh, confidence in, in its progress. Now, that particular programme was run over, over about 10-week period where we took organisations in at various stages and each of them at different levels of product maturity, uh, created an engagement plan that would last that 10-week 10, 10 period in order to overlay the, some of those value-add activities. And then it culminated on a, a pitch day uh, towards the, the end of that period, which is the end of 2019. Um, and some of those organisations are still actively involved in, in what we do and how we do it. Now, what, what's quite interesting about that programme was that, as I mentioned, it was the first one that we'd run um, related to our, our goals in social inclusion, but also uh, specifically on, on the, the subject matter in question. I think what it spawned is a whole load of learnings for us around how to do things, respect, how to run programs like that respectfully, uh, but also how to, how to run programs like that, that that actually cause a difference at a time when it's needed. Now, it's very easy in a We'll say it's very easy to assume in a 10-week program that you catch an organization at a time when they most need their, your help but it's statistically incredibly unlikely that that is the case and actually what we're thinking about now is how do we use the program as a touch point along a much longer relationship with that organization and how do we keep the services flowing beyond the intensive period and keep them relevant and valid for the organization throughout. Cool. And as somebody you know, who went through the Open Door Accelerator, um, if my company, it was definitely, I think, really uh, different and like, you know, a very in a positive sense to be in a cohort full of socially, you know, inclusive um, and social impact focused um, startups. I think that's something that having been in, in sort of different environments before, you're often the one or the kind of, you know, the one or two sort of additional um, entrance to the accelerated cohort and it's quite nice to be in a space where that is the primary focus and celebrate and it was good to sort of see um, you know what, what can happen when you customize that support to people 
with those outcomes because there's definitely a lot to be done um, in trying to change the broader entrepreneurial space to support organizations that don't have purely profit-led motives uh, and we can discuss a little bit of that in a sec um, but that sounds uh, that's really helpful for, to give people an idea of like what sort of things take place in Plexal um, I guess a broader question um, how are you making Plexal uh, an inclusive space for disabled people to come and become entrepreneurs there? So obviously there are there are formal programs like you said, but there's also informal stuff. So what you know about Plexal um, att- should attract people to come to this space if they've got an idea or an early stage or at least want to kind of get into into an ecosystem that might be able to help them produce that beyond this you know formal structuring that you mentioned. Steer me here, Matt, if if you think I'm heading in the wrong direction, but I view it as accessible on a uh, number of, of um, components to it and if I address each of those components as to what we're doing so physically accessible so Plexal's a ground floor um, office space and we've got about 70,000 square foot so it's a huge environment so you can house up to about a thousand people um, on on a single floor and what we're doing as part of the East London Inclusive Enterprise Zone is we're converting quite a significant proportion of Plexal into be um, wholly accessible for uh, users with a, a series of needs. And this will be in, um, not limited to, but, but some of the components that, that we're addressing is uh, changing some of our wayfinding features um, in order to, uh, to um, be more sympathetic with neurodiverse communities. Um, we are altering some of our tea point facilities um, to make sure that, that they are fully accessible for, for particularly wheelchair users heading towards those um, tea point facilities. We're introducing a series of meeting rooms that are fully accessible, so lots of space and, and um, movement areas around tables, different shape tables. We're introducing new desking uh, within the facility in order to make sure that, that people with a series of needs would be able to use them much more flexibly and they could, could be altered uh, using electric facilities rather than manual facilities. So we've put a lot of thought in conjunction with the steering group of these of inclusive enterprise zone around what investments we need to make in order to not just say we're about social inclusion and disability-led innovation. We're actually a place that lives and breathes it. We're a place that is constantly learning about it. We're a place that will never finish that journey. We just seek to understand the, the viewpoint of our users and, and will continue alter and upgrade what we've got. Um, accessibility, so there's a financial side to accessibility as well, of course. So we pride ourselves on being, you know, certainly one of the best value read cheapest um, workspace in London. So um, I'm not sure I can remember in three years of being open Plex without us ever losing a member based on on um, the value that we present to them. So often you'll see people move house and therefore move office location. You'll see people um, head to geographies closer to investors or customers. And, you know, we wish them well, uh, but I don't think we ever lose anyone on price because we're very intent about uh, being accessible, particularly to the local community, but moreover for our relevant communities. So and the East London Inclusive Enterprise Zone offers us uh, additional layer of, of discounts and um, incentive packages in order to attract in particular the user groups that, that we're trying to focus. And then in terms of, of the subject matter, so what we want to create in Plex is a, a community of like-minded people. And what we're now, uh, we're 
building upon is, is good foundations around how we create subject matter and engagements and collisions, if you, if you will, around how we get the community at large working with each other. And this works best, or sorry, it is probably best um, exampled when we ourselves are not involved and actually we see the, the ecosystem really starting to work with, you know, serendipity bringing one party and another together and they start collaborating on a new product or a new, new service uh, with each other. And that's, that's one of our proudest moments. Uh, but we're really trying to create a subject matter where people feel comfortable talking about some of the challenges or opportunities that their businesses face and indeed those individuals face. Uh, but they have a, a place where actually it's it's problem solving, it's crowdsourcing of solutions, it's you know the water cooler moment of the 80s is you know is the innovation moment in Plexor that we're all, all seeking to collaborate together on. Thanks, Andrea. I think I think it's really important that that understanding of accessibility, as you articulate, of you know three different levels, um, is you know much more widely, I guess, spoken about. I think a lot of the time, you know, physical accessibility is often is super important, but I think there's other factors of of you know financial barriers um, and you know the kind of cultural accessibility is also really important. I think one of the other things that um, often comes out in the space is, is this sort of a lot of the stereotypes around what said people do and don't want to do and I think you know even just take small examples of like you said of making tea areas and kind of common social spaces accessible rather than just the desk and the work and the you know the kind of lecture space uh, is fundamental because if you want people to feel included in a community they have to engage in all elements of that community and a large part of that is that like you said in person you know in passing um, but quite important social contact um, so that's great uh, Thanks for telling us a bit more about Plexel. One quick question to wrap up this first section, but what does the name Plexel mean or where does it come from or why did you settle on Plexel? Was it just a random string of letters? It's a very, very, very good question. So um, I wasn't actually involved in the branding decision around Plexel. It was um, slightly before my role emerged, but the, um, I understand that Plexus is a component in a central nervous system. Um, so Plexel is a, is a uh, evolution of the word Plexus. Um, as a con- as a connector within that nervous system, so the intent is that Plexel is the connector in an ecosystem um, in, a, in a similar fashion. Brilliant, awesome. Well, hopefully both by name and by nature. Um, but great. Let's jump into a little bit of then kind of like your journey specifically in setting up Plexel and some of the challenges that you face along the way. Because I think um, one of the good things about Plexel is that it's you know it is pioneering, it's innovating in and of itself. But I imagine that comes with some challenges. So if we can sort of go back to the start. Obviously, this is an issue um, that impacts a lot of people. Um, but uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but um, I don't think you have a disability or potentially fall into one of these groups. So I was wondering, Andrew, what sort of sparked your inspiration to want to work in this space and, and you know, what really kicked off, um, you know, that eureka moment where you realised you needed to do something about this issue, you know, which presumably is one of many that um, you could have spent your time working towards. Yeah. So I was, as I alluded to earlier, I was one of two people stood at a whiteboard in 2011 dreaming about what we could convince the government to let us do on the Olympic Park. And we came up with this concept that I won't bore you with again around this technology ecosystem. And we wanted it to be the first of a kind in London. And we wanted it to be the, an enduring project that would last you know, decades, not, not just you come in, you, you build something and, and you, you measure whether it's been successful or not, but it's, it's a new way of doing something and, and it was intended to have long-lasting impact. 
Now, the reason I reference that now is one thing that was very core to both that view um, and also the success of it that followed was the integrity around Olympic legacy. One thing I've taken extremely personally seriously over the course of the last um, eight years since the Olympics is the promises that were made at the time, particularly to the local inhabitants of the host boroughs. And it was a promise of, you know, great individual futures, so to more investment in schools, more employment opportunities, more higher education opportunities, um, more access to new kinds of jobs, so new new settings, new sectors, new technologies, and then higher higher average incomes that would then start the, the you know, proliferating effect in, in local communities. But it was more than just economic growth, it was about social growth and addressing some of the deeper concerns of those forgotten in society and those at risk of underrepresentation in society, those with less voice. Now, as a result of that, over the course of the last last eight years, as I've said, there's been a few moments where um, I thought I could personally make a difference to some of these issues. And I think it's, it's all too easy, I think, to be a cheerleader for, for activities like this. And I think you know, they're not criticising anyone, but I think you saw a lot of that in recent months around the Black Lives Matters campaigns. It was quite easy for brands to come out and, you know, make a statement or, or uh, you know, assert themselves into the conversation, but with no real plan of actually doing anything thereafter. And, and you know, I kind of, you know, to some extent, I understand the plight of some particularly big brands. But with Inplex, what I've got a personal opportunity to do is fulfil some of those promises I made in 2012. And it won't be about, you know, a company that implements a new technology that then internationalizes itself and becomes a global leader. I hope there will be a few of those, but I won't have personally had a role in influencing their product strategy and seeing them grow. I'll, I'll be hopefully con- conducting the orchestra around them. On social inclusion and specifically disability-led innovation and some of the other activities we do in the local community, um, particularly around uh, youth representation, youth democracy, some of the challenges around the antisocial behaviours that, that exist you know, all over the world, but particularly in East London. There's some activities in there that I can personally make a difference to. And that, that's where our, our push, particularly on social inclusion, particularly on disability-led innovation, and then why we're so delighted to be part of the Inclusive Enterprise Zone comes from. Awesome. Thanks for sharing a bit about your, your journey. If we can then dive into some of those things that you mentioned there, um, let's take disability-led innovation specifically. Uh, what are the, some of the problems that, you know, whether you beforehand or during your time at Plexel, um, have emerged as kind of key barriers to stopping more, you know, disabled-led uh, innovation? So, a few things. So, I think in no particular order, but if we think first of all around um, funding strategy. So one has a product irrespective of the market it addresses and that you need to fuel that product with investment. I think the challenge with the vast majority of disability-led innovation is it tends to social impact funds, which isn't always the right source of investment for the product in question and isn't always the right type of funding partner that will, will take one on a, on a growth journey you know, in the you know, product field noted. So that's point number one. I think the, some of the specialist nature of some of the technology that's been built 
Um, I think lots of individuals view the marketplace as, as um, small. I think as a result of that, it struggles for airtime on a, on, a, on a national and global stage, where actually I think there's a lot of disability-led innovation where, um, you know, to, to Russell's world, you kind of design for extreme circumstances. And actually some of the disability-led innovation is the greatest example where one, you know, designs a product genuinely for, for full inclusivity. Therefore, every user should be able to, to use the product. And actually in doing that, you, you encounter all of the challenges one might have in, in addressing your customer base. So actually it makes it so much easier to, to, to retro-engineer a product like that for, for a mass market use or, or other. So I sort of think there's lots of ambition that I think needs to be unlocked within, within some of the, the product set that presents itself to us. And I think um, if, if I say lifestyle, I'm not sure you mean, mean that particular word, but I think understanding some of the challenges around um, ensuring that you've got a community, a place, a service, but also a timetable uh, that supports some of the lifestyle challenges around uh, particularly disabled founders, but also those that are working with a user group um, within that community as well. So. For, for example, we ran a, a project for BT um, on uh, disability-led innovation in, in regards to the, the football sponsorships of the football associations. I think even just looking at user groups and how one convenes groups of people, one needs to think in a lot more detail about the, you know, how habitable your environment is, what, what the accessibility needs are, how do you drive forward the you know a respectful uh, but productive uh, focus to environments like that. Um, lots of that will is solved through collaboration. I think the enterprise zone is a great example where we're going to have like-minded people, we're going to have collaborators, uh, and we're going to find our way through challenges like that, rather than assume compliance. I think there's too much of society saying, well, "I've got a certificate," or "You know, I've complied with certain legislation," rather than pragmatism of saying, "Well, let's work through this together." And every day is a new challenge that we need to plan for. Um, and we need to bring, you know, the appropriate groups of people together in order to, to address those challenges. Yeah, awesome. Thank you for going through those points. I think particularly that sort of, you know, last point is an interesting one because it raises a couple of things around um, our expectations of how, of what success looks like and what efficiency is and what, you know, um, productivity should look like and how organisations are structured in a way that, you know, um, is, is generates growth and productivity and I think that kind of links into a lot of the stuff you mentioned around like funding streams and strategies and what people want to back because the narrative around what they've been told is good to back and you know what comes out of that and even this kind of general concept of you know what are the incentives or the returns they're looking to get when they do back things and, and what time scales etc so a couple of quick questions following on um, part of Plexel's job and, you know, its name is to connect people, and I think, in particularly, also to crowd in new players. If I can go, you know, as far as that, not just simply to take all the people who do this already, um, but to get other people who who don't to think differently. So, uh, given a lot of the kind of barriers you just mentioned are actually sort of tied to cultural narratives around disability and, and innovation, etc. What are some of the key things you think can be and and potentially are being done in this space to change how people think about disabled-led innovation? So I think 
when I look at at the Global Disability Innovation Hub, when I look at some of the programs they're running in the developing world, taking UK sourced innovation and exporting it, um, I think you start to see how competent and capable the UK innovation ecosystem is. I think that's point number one is, is how, how do we build a community that can harness the best in this genre, put a spotlight on it, and then know no limits as to where it can go and, and for whom it can go to. And I think, you know, when I, I look at your product, Matt, I think, you know, you're very specific um, community and, you know, open source data that you're, you're trying to um, coalesce. Actually, the, the use of that goes beyond the initial user group that, that you address and, you know, the product development roadmap in terms of services and, and um, intelligence and real-time interactivity. I think it is such an opportunity that I think, I think it's, it's products like yours that I think putting um, a community mindset and ecosystem available to you that can see your product develop, not, you know, it will all be your competence and intellectual property that causes it to happen, but actually having the serendipity of the moment to bounce those ideas around with a, with a like-minded group, I think is really important. So I think, to summarise that, I think it's it's knowing no boundaries, harnessing what we've got in, in this country. I think having the opportunity to point to it and I think that's what the physicality of Plexel does. It's, it's, it's a place where it happens rather than in the you know, ever-growing software-based world or software-defined world even. Um, the, everything happens in the ether. There's not, there's not one um, location for this to coalesce around. So and I think that's really important. I think the might of collaboration, I think, is really important. So earlier on, I mentioned our goal was to bring together academia, big enterprise and innovators. And I think the particularly we have UCL, of course, from an academic perspective, and all of the the uh, competence depth that they will bring. But I think big enterprise is really important as well. So thinking about big enterprises either as a channel to market, as a conduit to market, um, or even as a potential customer of some of the innovation that emerges. But I think bringing human-centered design competence that exists within some of the larger corporates for very different reasons than the challenges that some of our founders will be will be attacking. But I think having access to those people coming in and out of Plexal, you know, very many days a week actually presents an opportunity in itself that we can bring together the big and the small. We can bring together the the agile creatives with the you know structured um, um, scalers. And I think it, it's exactly that that I think this ecosystem needs and the opportunity that presents itself to us. And do you find that those enterprises and those kind of larger players that you mentioned, which, you know, end up lending a lot of institutional legitimacy to the cause, do you find that people are already predisposed to this and they're the ones who come on board? Or have you been able to convince people who've never thought about this before? How's the reception been to some of those, you know, legacy kind of players which have a really important role in in building the stature of this sector? So I think there's two things to chat about in relation to large organisations. So one is the behemoth nature of most of the brands we're talking about here. So you, know, you imagine a large automotive or a large telecom or a large utility player. In order for brands like that to strategically change, it will take a decade. Um, and it's within that decade whether they, you know, they know whether that pivot or their strategic change is going to affect itself to a point of success or a point of mediocrity. And, 
as as they turn the the super tanker, they're not quite sure which which you know which shore they're headed to. So I think the, the first point is is because of their behemoth nature, they're very keen to um, interact and observe with agile creatives. So I think point number one is they're willing. Point number two is sector by sector, you're seeing organisations being transformed by digital, transformed by new aggressive market entrants with different business models. I think when you look sector by sector, you can probably tell the difference um, as to which sector one is in to their both appetite to engage and their ability to engage. And if I pick two quite alternative sectors, which I think are very positive about engagement in this space, so firstly, automotive and secondarily, um, banking. So in automotive, um, it's pretty obvious to all that looks that, that there's a challenge around source of fuel, there's a challenge around utility of the vehicle, there's a challenge around new business models emerging. I think it's the you know, common um, concept that most new or most current large automotive players are now trying to build much better relationships with cities, much better relationships with how individuals move around those cities rather than the chassis, the metal chassis that they've been used to producing in factories for 100 years. So I think you're automatically seeing a change in perspective at leadership and below levels that says we need to think differently about this and we need to engage differently. And as a result, I think when I um, approach an automotive um, organisation, I see a huge appreciation for user experience, huge appreciation for uh, human-centred design and, and, you know, real drive around engagement. Banking, slightly different, so clearly similar sorts of challenges in terms of digital disruption, uh, new business models emerging, challenger banks starting to arrive. But the the association of brand and customer um, in my small little world, I think, has, has been broken within banking. Uh, I don't think it, it, you don't bank with someone for life. Now you buy a product, you appreciate that product for the life of its product, and then you migrate to next product. And I think in the transformation areas within financial services and particularly the large traditional banks, I think they've understood that they need to engage with consumers in a very different way, in a much more personal way. And as a result of that, they tend to have isolated teams that appreciate the challenge and those isolated teams are ready to engage. I think what remains to be seen is when they engage and the scale requirements of either participation funding or you know them as a customer potentially is actually at that stage do they have the wherewithal to convince the rest of the organization to come with them and i think the two differences there i think are quite interesting where automotive the product is about now people moving around not selling chassis made of metal so the entire organization tends to be engaged in banking as a as an alternative it the product is still about a digital transaction of the banking record. So they haven't yet got the full organization, the full sector to turn towards issues of this type, but they do have centralized teams who are ready to engage and willing to engage. Exactly things like that when we, we help some of our, our founders and teams start thinking about how relevant their product is for different marketplaces and who the source of funds and customer activity might be. It's exactly that type of thing we try and dive into to really try and understand it and therefore make one's pitch in a, in a more appropriate fashion. 
how do you find organizations think about minority groups when they're talking about human-centered design, right? Because um, I can see how we want to think about, you know, innovating in large sectors. You take a big automotive like Ford or something like that who makes cars for everybody and you say you need to innovate because uh, climate change is happening, et cetera, you know, cities are changing, et cetera, et cetera. But how do you get them to, you know, think about actually there's a group of people here, you know, who aren't the majority, but they're a significant minority. And when we think of human-centered design, we have to broaden our conception, you know, of what human is and, and what that means. Um, because I think the danger a lot of the time is these organizations bolt on, you know, extra additions for disability or, you know, accessibility after the fact because they, you know, they argue that, well, we're innovating for the majority of our customers and this works for X and it would cost more to do it for Y as well. Yeah, so I, th- I think there's increasing appetite, I've mentioned earlier on, around designing for use cases beyond the majority. Now, I think in a, in both the technical and the product teams within a lot of, in, of industries, I think the, the challenge that you can't rightly raise there, Matt, around the lowest cost in the unit cost delivery of the product market versus the highest utility of a product, I think are still two very competing themes and more often than not, the lowest, lowest unit cost of delivery wins. Now, I think what I'm seeing the start of the change and what I'd really like Capsule to be is a place for that open conversation to take place. Now, when we've, we've hosted multi-sector user groups and and forums where we we delve into issues of this type. I think, you know, clearly there are some significant challenges ahead, not not least that COVID presents from an economic perspective, that there is a risk that decisions like that continue in that way. And that, you know, the end outcome is the lowest unit cost always wins. Um, And and as you say, relatively ungraceful additions get made as as a compromise to enable inclusivity but not in a way that's graceful or respectful to the user or indeed efficient for that user and i think what i'd really love to see out of the inclusive enterprise zone that that we're launching is the ability to face into this either sector by sector product by product or user group by user group and just start bringing out real experience of existing volume products within the marketplace and adding to that voice and amplifying that voice and then what I think we can do in our outreach activity is starting to influence the new product designers of the future that actually understands that unit cost at point of sale isn't necessarily unit costs of you know, total cost of ownership. And actually the, the difference between those two things can start to influence the way in which people design products at scale. And they can start to think differently about actually some of that cost coming up front in order to drive a better user experience. Uh, in life and access a huge marketplace, the marketplace that that's willing to spend and capable of spending, um, that actually is is almost looking out for that that product to be loyal to because it addresses a load of concerns. Mm-hmm. Cool. And I think um, you mentioned obviously how COVID changes that and some of the the considerations that will factor into business decisions and particularly innovation over the next little while, um, which we can get to in a sec because I think that's particularly interesting from the kind of this point of what actually becomes the most important thing here is it unit cost or is it something broader in terms of you know social impact or even brand reputation and corporate citizenship etc um, but before we get there I just wanted to kind of pick your brain a little bit on um, I guess being a non-disabled person in the innovation disability-led innovation space can you just give us some insight into you know how you view that 
challenge and that, you know, in some sense also that your responsibility to, to, to be an ally and, and some of the lessons you've learned about that from, you know, your team and the disabled community you work with and anybody else. Yeah, so I, um, personally, I'm, I'm a little bit of an introvert, you know, relatively close to the centre of the spectrum. Um, but also I'm, um, so strange I've said now, but I pride myself on my humility. And I think what my role here is not to lead. I, I don't have the right to lead. I think I have the obligation to create opportunity. I have the obligation to listen and learn, and then I have the intent in order to add value to the, the new incoming parties to this community. I think if this ever becomes an exercise where a brand such as Plexels um, seeks to get brand value before adding value to the constituents of the community, it has gone horribly wrong, and there's absolutely not an intent here. I think you know, exactly to your point, Matt. Here, so I don't have a I don't have a right in this community in order to you know I can't show full empathy. I can't. I can provide services. I can provide capabilities. I can provide resource. And it, given my background and my commitment towards Olympic legacy and everything we said we would do, is absolutely my personal obligation to make sure I do that. And you know, I won't rest till this this activity is launched, it's working. We start seeing some measures in place, and we start seeing some businesses growing um, out of the services provided in, in the, the fabric that that comes. Great, and and I guess what is that? What's one piece of advice you'd give to to people who might be in a similar situation, who you know feel, I guess, afraid that because they don't have the lived experience or the kind of direct expertise in, say, you know, disability-related sector, but like you said, want to help, um, you know. Uh, it, invest or you know crowd in people into this space or just generally support um this disability-led innovation ecosystem that's being built in london what sort of advice would you give to people who are you know think they have the potential but potentially don't know how to go about it or feel uncomfortable from some of those points we just mentioned i think come to the table so get involved in the conversation and bring your perspective because everyone will have a uniquely valuable perspective on on the, you know, the challenge at hand, the opportunity that presents itself, and then the method of which how, how you know, we collaborate for the future. And standing at the side is never going to help anyone, you or the, the community we're talking about here. Um, so get involved and, and get that perspective out there because it, it will be valuable and you will learn in the engagement as well. I recall actually um, one that I invited a, a, a colleague who I met, not a colleague, a friend who I met in Texas to the Open Door Pitch Day back in December 2019 because he's a, a philanthropist. And he runs a social impact fund in the US and I knew that he'd be very interested in the subject matter in question. And some of the insights he had, not being familiar with the UK challenge, but actually looking at some of the technologies to how it could, you know, could have affected global stage, um, were uniquely insightful. And it, it gave me a great, great example where you know, this one individual in question um, isn't familiar with the, the UK landscape participants of innovation or indeed innovation ecosystems. 
but he did have the perspective coming from Texas, the way the US thinks, the way the US invests, and and actually how rigorous they are about the investment case and start to stare at companies and look and make me look at them in different ways. So actually, and that's the the you know the flavor of of what we can create in this ecosystem where we, we've got diversity of thoughts and then as a result diversity of input. Yeah, awesome. I think that's really helpful. And I think one thing I would add, you know, for people who are you know want to become an ally in this space but but a little bit unsure where to start is is this concept of not letting perfect be the enemy of the good i think a lot of people are super afraid of making mistakes and so they never start they kind of think someone better placed will be able to do it but a large part of it is mainstreaming this so it, it needs more than just you know the people who either are already good at it or already doing it or you know care about it because it's related to them and i think that point that you mentioned before about plexal being on a continuous and never-ending journey of learning is is the right way to do it i think people you know there is also you can't say there is the disabled community in a kind of homogenous sense who all do x and expect y and i think part of it is allowing for people to come into the space and, and embrace the fact that it is diverse and it is messy and it's a bunch of people all doing different stuff and that's fine um, but i think we sort of need to kind of break that narrative that if you do something wrong you'll get in trouble or there's a fear of kind of endeavoring to, to try because that's not what you do in your day-to-day job um, so thanks i think that's really helpful uh, Let's look a little bit now um, to the future. So we call this sort of section the innovation imagination section. Um, very quickly, a couple of quick fire questions for you. So um, what do you hope uh, becomes the future of, of you know, disability-led innovation in the UK? So um, you've started Plexal, it's, it's tied in to, you know, very closely to the Olympic legacy, which was in 2012. It's now 2020. Um, where do you hope that, you know, in 2028, 20, 2030, where are we in this space? So I hope the UK is famous for its disability-led innovation around the world. Um, I hope we can claim to have improved not only the UK's disabled community's lives, but on an international um, platform or many, many millions of people around the world, their lives as a result of the innovation that we foster and, and stimulate uh, from this movement. Um, I think I'd like to see particularly equity investments, but investments thought about in a different way as a result of our movement. So more access to diverse forms of funding that help fuel companies on their growing journey. Um, I'd like to see more examples and not just hero examples but more metrics around opportunity so actually it's all it's not easy but it's uh, relatively easy for us to pick out individuals where we say look what happened in the case of joe blogs and how they were successful it's actually let's start talking numbers here and not just tens hundreds thousands let's really engage in communities, not only with the, the companies that we're supporting, but the products they're making and the users that they are, are helping um, and the financial impact of, of that and how we're getting that ecosystem starting to move. So within, let's say, a decade of here, I think, you know, metric-based outcomes for users of these products, number of companies grown in the, the, the hundreds um, and the impact has been seen on an international stage, and we're no longer talking about heroes. We're, talk, we're talking about you know, institutionally created industries where, where products have a difference. Great. Yeah, because I think that outlier narrative is a really frustrating one because um, you're either 
a lot of the time disabled entrepreneurs are very or, you know, disabled people in general have very have people have very low expectations of them so those who then succeed are not seen as what what could happen if you properly support people or put them in a space where they you know can access things and can thrive but they're the outliers who would have succeeded anyway which makes it unrelatable to both people who are also disabled in that space and want to do something but people who are looking outside and want to back other disabled uh, founders so to, on that point what would you say to people out there why and you know people who have funds or uh, you know have capital to deploy or work in this space of supporting organizations why should they back disabled founders or disabled led uh, startups I got a glimpse in our open door program of the quality of the products I think we're just about to see in many numbers. Um, and I think there's all sorts of ideas out there where we can create products that can have a massive market impact. So I'd say to investors is, you know, to a certain extent, come and be selfish because you'll, you'll see a group of products in latent states that are ready for investment. Um, you'll also have your chance to be part of a community that will constantly be introducing new technologies and new products to it. And if you're at the front of the queue, you get, you get the chance to invest first. And then I guess in a similar vein, what's something you'd tell a disabled founder who, you know, has an idea, they spend their, you know, they spend their waking hours thinking about a problem, they've come up with a solution to it, but then they want to, you know, they want to make it scalable, they want to help other people have access to it, but they don't know where to start. What's one thing you would uh, pass on to them? Come to Plexa as soon as you possibly can. Uh, no, uh, generally avail of the community. There's a series of discount packages, so everything from free membership to the community and access to services, um, all the way through to a bespoke activity where we can overlay a plan on top of your organisation and your product to, to try and help it get to market and develop in that marketplace. So, you know, do not hold back. Come and get involved. You'll have a like-minded community. You'll have a respectful community, and you'll have one that obsesses about your product and how it grows. Well, I think that's a great place to end on, and hopefully, lots of people listening here do <laughs> take you up on the offer to come to Plexal, and and similarly, lots of people looking to support do take you up on the offer to to jump in and come to the table. Um, but thanks for taking the time to chat with us today, Andrew. We really appreciate the work that you've you know implemented into the into the ecosystem in East London, and I'm sure. Uh, you know, it's already seeing results and I'm sure they'll continue to come. So thanks for being um, with us today. Thanks for taking the time to, to tell us a little bit about the journey so far and, and where you've got to and where you hope it's headed. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Inclusive Innovators podcast. Next week, we're joined by Emma Frost from the London Legacy Development Corporation. Do you want to take part in the Elise program or be part of our community? To find out more, visit www ucl.ac.uk forward slash enterprise forward slash Elise or give us a follow on Twitter at Elise 2020. You can find out more about our virtual and physical workshops on social media, funding, app development and a masterclass on accessible comms. Captioning will be available for each session. We'd also like to thank our Elise partners including Barclays Eagle Labs, Capsule Enterprise Disability Rights UK, Global Disability Innovation Hub, Hackney Council, Here East, Greater London Authority, Inclusion London, London Legacy Development Corporation, Loughborough University London, Plexal, London College of Fashion and UCL. This podcast is powered by Sociability.